0: I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing the latest in China's relations with the European Union, including China's evolving interests and initiatives in Europe. In recent years, China's placed increasing emphasis on promoting strong ties with countries in the European Union. As China's largest trading partner, this relationship is crucial to China's economic success and provides a key alternative market amidst the U.S.-China evolving trade war. Through efforts like uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, the 16 plus 1 summit, China is seeking to strengthen its ties with the European Union with mixed success. To discuss the developing China EU relationship, I'm joined by Teresa Fallon. Teresa is the founder and director of the Center for Russia, Europe, Asia Studies in Brussels. She is concurrently a member of the Council for Security Cooperation in the Asia Pacific and a non resident senior fellow of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Theresa's also testified numerous times to the European Parliament Committee on Foreign Affairs and the Subcommittee on Security and Defense. Teresa, thanks for joining us today.
1: I'm delighted to be with you, Bonnie.
0: So why don't we start with the big picture? How would you assess the current state of China-EU relations? And what are the key issues that are dominating the relationship today?
1: Well, China-EU relations have evolved uh, very dramatically, especially with the enunciation of the Belt and Road Initiative, because all roads lead to Europe. And so Europe is trying to understand where this relationship is going. Should they embrace the Belt and Road? Is it a threat? Is it a positive thing for, th- for their growth? So we saw um, this summer they had the EU-China annual summit, and in the last two years they were unable to sign any statement. But this year was the first time that in three years they were able to come up with the signed statement. So they were very motivated to have an agreement because they were concerned about um, trade issues and uh, impending trade war possibly with the Trump administration. So they were able to cooperate on trade issues. They wanted to speak with one voice and show that uh, they would support the international system. That is how the current state of the China-EU relations are. And I would add that uh, there's also been a lot more spikiness in the relationship. There's been almost a seismic shift in some areas, how Europe perceives China. Uh, For example, there have been think tank papers in Europe on China's Sharp power, and that wasn't really on the horizon before. So there there's much more uh, interest, or people are r- recognizing China's influence activities in Europe, and that wasn't really on the horizon before. Also, um, so there are also concerns about Chinese investment in Europe. It has uh, ratcheted up from a very low level to you know, it's increased rather dramatically. But at the same time, Europe has been unable to invest as easily in China. So this has been a, a turning point. And the European Chamber of Commerce, similar to the U.S., has a lot of complaints about the the lack of uh, reciprocity for investments inside China. So there's growing pushback in regard to China's investments. And just a few years ago, I was doing research on, um, because in the U.S. there's a CFIUS, a Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States, which just underwent some reforms. And Europeans, I always wonder, why don't they have some sort of uh, an EU CFIUS type of thing? And European officials said, oh, no, that would never happen. But in a very short period of time now, we see that the Europeans are actually uh, working together to come up with an EU-wide screening mechanism. Uh, and it's not just for Chinese investments, but that kind of promoted their interest in screening these investments because a lot of high-tech industry uh, is being invested in by Ch- uh, by China. So Germany was kind of leading this, and they wanted to... Um, kind of tighten controls. Out of the 28 EU member states, only 14 have some form of a screening mechanism. Now, this is going to be very difficult to get through, to get all 28 EU member states to agree. But the thinking is that they'll start at a very low level and get group agreement and an increase of communication between member states about what exactly is being invested in in Europe.
0: You didn't, you didn't talk about maybe security issues or human rights. Are those important in the EU relationship with China? There's growing interest because of European NGOs, for
1: example, not being able to operate in China, so many of them are leaving. Uh, the EU, was, for the first time in their history, was unable to make a statement on human rights at the UN in Geneva because it was blocked um, by Greece. Uh, so, There are concerns about Chinese investment inside Europe because it kind of leaves Europeans unable to
0: speak with one voice. If we look at the objectives that China has in forging closer relations with the EU and the goals that the EU has in having better relations with with China, are they really working towards the same goals or do they have different objectives?
1: I would say that the perception in the past was that you know, China can be an investor in Europe. Um, China has a huge market, 1.4 billion people can't be wrong. So there was always this great interest uh, as exporters and and trade was really kind of driving the the relationship. But I would say the it's three pronged. So the Made in China 2025 program really kind of woke up some European economies, especially Germany, because Germany is an exporter and they they understood that China would eventually move up the value added chain, but They were doing it far more rapidly than they had anticipated. And with the sale of KUKA, it's a German robotics company. There are about 12 German robotics companies, but KUKA was really the number one. It was the most, it was the best, the crown jewel, and China bought it. And so that happened in February 2016. And I think that created this kind of dialogue within the the German government about what are we doing? Are we selling the crown jewels? I mean, China was no longer seen as a client or consumer of German products, but a possible future competitor. So I think that created uh, a desire to reevaluate Germany's economic policy and also, because nobody wants to be seen as the one tough on China, so to bring it up to the EU level and have it an EU-wide screening mechanism. So I think there's growing... um, concerned that China is is moving up rapidly, up the value-added chain, and that they will be competitors. Um, Also, when Xi Jinping, when the constitution was changed so that Xi Jinping could actually stay in power, this kind of created a cognitive dissonance in the the European narrative, because the Europeans kept thinking that they were helping China to reform, that maybe democracy eventually would arrive, or some sort of system that they could you know, work with more easily, but instead they they see a hardening of uh, Leninist economy or mercantilist economy, and this is not in the interest of European economic long term interest. So, I think there's been a big reevaluation on the EU China front.
0: So it seems to me you think the biggest areas of friction are really in the economic and trade realm. That certainly seems to be the case. Also in U.S. relations with China, do you see any? Areas of cooperation uh, in the United States, the Trump administration is not really, for example, working with China on, uh, on, cl- on climate change. I- is this still of interest to the EU? Are there other areas of cooperation in the future and, and, and present between China and the EU?
1: Yes, because U.S. is the only country that pulled out of the Paris climate agreement. So last year when they had the EU-China summit, there was great expectation that a statement would be made, a joint EU-China statement on climate, but it was a very transactional uh, decision. The Chinese didn't get market economy status, so that was uh, a key uh, diplomatic achievement that the Chinese had set for themselves, and the Europeans were unwilling to give that to them. So kind of the climate statement was held hostage, and it wasn't made, so um, these, I, this idea that Europe and China could cooperate on, on climate and have this you know, powerful narrative that we're going to work together, even though the U.S. is pulled out of this kind of fell by the wayside, so that didn't work out, um, but the reality is they could pick up the ball on that again and, and craft a narrative that they're working together on these issues. Uh, but with the EU-China statement, they really, the Chinese negotiators played hardball, and since they didn't get the market economy status, they wouldn't agree to any sort of signed statement. Um, the, the idea is that China and Europe can work together on global governance reform, so it makes Europeans feel very valued on the international stage as well. Um, there are many things that they haven't been able to uh, get over, like the arms embargo that was one of the other diplomatic uh things on a diplomatic checklist that the Chinese wanted to get from the Europeans, and they were unable to achieve that. So not, they not—they don't even ask about it anymore because it won't happen. Um, so arms embargo, market economy status, and the Europeans are very concerned about WTO reform. So uh, they have a trilateral with the U.S., Japan, and Europe, but there's also a, a bilateral with EU and, and China. So they're working together with China, and it also offers China a way to save face because they're working together to reform the WTO rules. How, how this will pan out in the end, we'll, we'll wait to see. Um, there's been a lot of talk about a bilateral investment treaty between EU and China, but the, that's been really been dragging for a long time. There's some that want to even jump over that and have a free trade agreement, but if they have so much difficulty getting a bilateral um, trade agreement, it w- might be very difficult to do the FTA. So uh, we'll see how that works. But part of the Europe, uh, the Chinese narrative is about multilateralism, and that's Europe's strength. And so China tries to say that, you know, in a multilateral world, which is kind of saying we don't like U.S. Uh, um, kind of unilateral power, we need to work on multilateralism together. So those are areas where China and Europe uh, appear to want to work together. Also, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, because as I mentioned earlier, all roads lead to Europe. So uh, the question now is, I think it was back in April, 27 of the 28 EU member ambassadors uh, wrote a letter complaining about the Belt and Road Initiative and that Europe should not embrace it because of three things, lack of transparency, uh, an uneven playing field, and norms and standards. So the Europeans uh, did not really... Embrace it. They'd never signed the agreement at the Belt and Road Forum, and you know China was a bit shocked and surprised by that. So these are issues that that Europe really feels strongly about, and they're not about to compromise on. And uh, in the EU-China statement, there you know a lot of compromise was made because the Belt and Road uh, initiative was also mentioned, and and the Europeans uh, will try to find ways to work with China with the connectivity platform and. You know, it, it was trying to show uh, that the Chinese probably asked to have that in the statement because it's one of their most important foreign policy issues. So there, there has been some compromise. And we're um, waiting to see the EU has a white paper that's going to be coming out in regard to their response to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And that's due to be published September 19th. So it's been ta- it has taken a long time because they've had many, uh, a lot of input from various uh, agencies And uh, that will be a real barometer of EU-China relations, I think.
0: I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how China prioritizes its relations with different states. Um, Are they focused on Germany because it's the biggest economy? Do they really have uh, very differentiated policies towards all of the 28 member states how do they deal with uh, developing a strategy toward the EU?
1: That's a very good question because there's the, you know, the, the rhetoric is that we support the EU, and, but they also like dealing bilaterally because they're such a, a large economy and they have obviously much more leverage if they deal on a bilateral basis. So their biggest trade partners are the three, you know, the UK, Germany, and France, and they have privileged uh, relations. For example, Merkel has traveled to Beijing, I think, 12 times, and uh, another organization that's kind of carved out of the EU, and it's called the 16 Plus One. It's made of 11 EU member states and five possible accession states, and they're smaller Central Eastern European countries that this gives them uh, the ability to meet with Li Keqiang, who comes over for the meeting. So every other year, it's held in Beijing. And the other years when it's held in Europe, it, it rotates between different member states. So they had it in Bulgaria this year. But there's um, a lot of promise. And there's almost some have described it as promise fatigue. So the Chinese emphasize that they will have these investments. It sounds very attractive, but then they never really materialize. So there's there's some promise fatigue there, and also um, it's easier for Beijing or Chinese companies to invest in the non-member states because they don't have as many rules as the EU member states. For example, uh, the EU member states can't allow for Chinese, you know, labor to come in, and there have been examples where, you know, the Chinese had a steep learning curve on following EU rules and regulations. For example, in Poland, the Chinese a Chinese company had won a bid for a road project, and they were unable to fill it, fulfill it because they didn't put that into the, the bid that they would pay for local labor. They assumed they could bring in um, Chinese labor. So this, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding, and it's a learning curve for the Chinese just as much as it is for the Europeans. But these subregional groupings, um, some in Brussels are very, very concerned about because they see it as a way to weaken the EU. Uh, the traditional countries had tend to side with China. For example, um, the July 2016 arbitral tribunal decision between uh, the Philippines and China on on, on the South China Sea uh, was not it was it was not really strongly supported by the EU, which surprised everyone because if one thing the EU should stand for is rule of law, but it was because of three member states. Um, one of them, Hungary, and the other, Greece, which have received substantial amounts of investment from China. So they, uh, in fact, kind of blocked the statement and forced it to be weakened and watered down. And afterwards, Hungary even you know, published their own statement and many joked that it was written, translated from the Chinese. So you have these member states that uh, traditionally... To show they're they're kind of unhappy with what Brussels are doing, they see China as a kind of a hedge, as a way to say we don't like what, what's happening in Brussels. So uh, Brussels is very concerned about Chinese influence in this region, and it does prevent the Europeans to speak with one voice. It's very difficult to get agreement among 28 member states. It's a bit nuanced. So the Chinese like the big market that the EU has, and it's easier for them to invest because the rules and regulations are equal all across the EU. But at the same time, they like having some leverage. And when there are policies, uh, for example, the foreign direct investment screening mechanism or the arbitral tribunal decision or human rights issues, they can be blocked by these states. So Greece, Hungary, you know, the usual uh, states that seem to have a lot more in common or who have investments from China, and they tend to vote uh, to support Chinese policies
0: you mentioned earlier the Belt and Road Initiative. This has uh, almost become a, a global initiative uh, for China, and Europe seems to be an important part of it. And there is um, a focus of attention on this high-speed rail that the Chinese would like to build that would link uh, Belgrade and Budapest. Uh, is that something that you think will be realized? Is this a, Is this somehow like a litmus test of China's relations with the EU? Well, this is
1: a very good example because you have Hungary, a member state, and Serbia, a non-member state. And this is kind of a classic Chinese way of doing things. So they they create this project that straddles the two. And um, the the rail was downgraded. I don't even believe it's going to be a high-speed rail, it's just going to be an upgraded rail. But um, the procurement was not open, so it was uh, investigated. It's, It's in the process of being investigated by Brussels to make sure that the procurement policy and rules were followed, because from what I understand, it was just a a bid by the Chinese that they won, and there was no other competition, and it was um, very non-transparent. Even inside Hungary, there's domestic anger about this, because I haven't done the figures myself, but they're saying it would take 500 years for this to become economic, so uh, it doesn't seem like a very good deal. And this is the other thing that uh, European officials complain about, because... Hungary is turning to China for this investment, but they could actually get a zero-interest loan or very low-interest loan from EU uh, because they have this as uh, part of their infrastructure development plan. So it doesn't make any economic sense for them to turn to China to get this loan, whereas they could turn to the EU and get this for very low cost without creating so much debt. And in addition in the same neighborhood, we see Montenegro, a new NATO member. It's not an EU member, but it's a possible accession state, and it's in the 16 plus one. And they have a huge debt problem with with China. So it's one of these fragile kind of debt trap countries. So the EU just sees it right on its periphery. Countries that possibly could have become EU member states are in so much debt that it has derailed their application to become an EU member
0: state. I wanted to ask you about the EU's attitudes towards China's relationship with uh, Russia. Uh, The Chinese are, for the first time, participating in the Russian war games, uh, Vostok 2018. Uh, We have seen a strengthening of overall of the military relationship between uh, China and Russia. And in the United States, uh, the national security strategy that was published by the Trump administration last December Uh, called both China and Russia revisionist powers and implied that they were working together to undermine the rules-based order. So how does Europe look at that relationship?
1: I think Europe is fearful that at one point they're going to have to be asked to make a choice. And this is something that really frightens them, because the most comfortable position for them is to sit on the fence, take their time, and not have to make any decisions. But instead of, you know, in the past, it's easier to look at China. China was far away, um, even these kind of dual use arms dual use goods sales to to China didn't disturb them because it just was kind of far away but now we're seeing uh, you know Russia China mil- uh, naval exercises for example we saw from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean two years ago last summer they had um, an exercise in the Baltic Sea with China Russia and they were even shooting off live ammunition near Kaliningrad which is a very sensitive point especially to uh, the littoral states there. So it's definitely on the Europeans' radar. And then in addition to that, you have the new Europe, uh, Chinese overseas base in Djibouti, and that's right here in Europe's neighborhood. So instead of thinking of China as far away and not, nothing to worry about, I think the Europeans are, are growing concerned. And then in addition, we have the ice silk Road. So China's becoming, you know, moving in closer and closer, and it's um, Chinese investments, for example went from nothing to 10% of European ports. So it, it happened so quickly that I think it's just taken time for EU member states to kind of change the perception about China, that they're just not a, a you know, developing economy, that they also are potentially a military threat. And we see not a threat, but uh, a competitor and someone in their region and uh, um, working with Russia Now, I think many don't see it as an alliance or even an entente, but they're trying to figure out what the relationship is. And it's very, you know, China is very um, cautious in how they portray it with Russia, uh, the the relationship with Russia to the Europeans. And uh, in some cases, I've heard Chinese officials say at a conference that we can help improve your relations with Russia. So they're trying to act as if they're in a mediating role with the Europeans and Russia after Uh, what happened with Ukraine and Crimea and the sanctions. So uh, it's an interesting relationship between China, Russia, and Europe, but I think there's a lot more concern, especially, as you mentioned, with this Vostok, it's the the largest uh, military exercise between Russia and China ever. This type of uh, exercise was reserved only for allies in the past. So it does send um, some messages, especially to the Central and Eastern European member states.
0: If you look in your crystal ball maybe out another 5 years or or even longer how do you expect the China-EU relationship to develop? And, and, and what do you think are going to be the key variables that affect that relationship? Is the US an important factor? Is it China's uh, foreign policy, whether or not it becomes uh, the number one uh, power in the world? Um, is, is it some other factors that, that the Europeans will be concerned about, that they will be looking at as they um, decide how to cooperate and compete with China going forward?
1: Well, it's, it's a very interesting time, because uh, in many of these areas, we see common cause between the U.S. and Europe. But with the Trump administration, it's introduced a high level of unpredictability for the Europeans. Um, the Trump administration officials have said they don't like NATO. They don't like Europe. Uh, Trump even said Europe is a foe. So this definitely you know, it registers for Europeans, and they're concerned by this narrative. Um, it can change. Uh, There is 70 years of an alliance, the Transatlantic Alliance, and it has deep roots. So one administration can't change all of that. Nevertheless, there are concerns, and unpredictability is a key issue. So the Europeans tend to see Russia. Uh, They're they're, they're worried about Russia. They're worried about China. But, you know, many Americans might be surprised to to find out that many Europeans are also concerned about the U.S. and um, how they perceive their behavior, especially with tariffs and the possible trade war and the kind of mili- um, weaponization of financial sanctions and that's that's very worrying to them uh, just recently Germany and France have tried to get together to come up with an alternative European financial system that would kind of um, shadow Swift in order to keep up the uh, Jcpoa deal the Iranian nuclear deal and because this you know once the US says that they will Continue sanctions on Iran, it, the, the Europeans won't be able to invest there anymore, and their banks won't be able to function. So, there are several areas where the Europeans and the U.S. aren't on the same page in regard to Iran, um, climate change, the Paris Agreement, uh, tariffs, how to deal with uh, China, and China is using that as a way to cultivate a closer relationship with Europe. But at the same time, I find really within the last two years, Europe is far more wary of China, because they see them growing very strongly economically and and see them as more of a competitor. Um, One area that should really be on everyone's radar is Africa, China relations in Africa, because they're huge investors there. And, you know, traditionally, Europeans had a lot of influence there. So with the Federico Mogherini, the high representative, gave a speech last week to the visiting um, ambassadors. So every year, on the first week of September, all the EU ambassadors return to Brussels. They have their reports. They talk about what they're going to do for the whole year. And the three issues that were on their radar were Africa, multilateralism, and the Balkans. So that's how they – those are the three highlights. I mean, it's not a tour of the world, but those are the three issues that really are of most importance for the Europeans. And I should add that uh, even Angela Merkel has warned China about their activities in the Balkans. And uh, Europeans also see, you know, Chinese investments toking tensions in the region, which is traditionally, you know, a powder keg of European politics. So this is something. It's not just Russia's influence there, but it's also China's influence, which we've never had that before. And it's it's definitely uh, been flagged by European leaders. So China is being seen as more of a threat. Uh, in some areas uh, in the geopolitical chessboard that we're seeing the world uh, evolve into.
0: Well, we've been talking with Teresa Fallon, the founder and director of CRIAS, the Center for Russia, Europe, Asia Studies in Brussels. Thanks so much, Teresa, for helping us to understand this really important uh, China-EU relationship. Thank you, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure.